0: I've been gone for most of it, but you guys have been in a series, a, a preaching series on prayer, praying our way to Pentecost. Um, I, I did one message and then vacated, and other people filled in for me. Um, and this is the last message of that series next week. is Pentecost Sunday, and we have a special message just for, for that day. So uh, kind of get ready for that. Um, very excited about that. And on this, this Memorial Day week, and I would have loved to have found... Right, the scripture, the Bible story, the Bible verse, right, that properly addresses the sense. And I can only imagine, because I have not experienced this myself, the pain and sorrow of losing a son or a daughter, maybe a dad, an uncle in military, maybe maybe way younger than what would have been expected. This incredible um, selfless sacrifice. What, how does how does the family get their heads around that? Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's lots of Bible stories of death and salvation, salvation by kings, by a Messiah, right? Um, I could have done a simple Internet search, found lots of, lots of good passages for Memorial Day. Um, the whole Bible is full of information on prayer. You know, I could have just dug through that. Um, our whole series built around prayer. But there have been times, I'm just, I'm just going to make a, a blanket statement. If it hasn't happened already, it will happen. And I take that idea from motorcyclists that I've known. You know, you ask them if they ever wrecked, because that's my big—that's my wife's big fear of me riding a motorcycle. It's my reality; it's her fear. Um, If you haven't gone down, you will, right? Ask every motorcyclist I've ever known have told me that. If you haven't gone down, you will. So, kind of plan accordingly. And, And there's this idea also in Scripture here, right? There have been times for some of you. And for others of you, it'll come. (laughs) Don't wish for it. Don't pray for it. But I can almost guarantee you it it will arrive. Uh, A time where when what the Bible teaches about prayer, at least what we think it teaches about prayer and and life, the way we experience it, it it doesn't match up. Right. The pain and sorrow that we suffer and that we feel in this lifetime. And we look at all these promises and we're like, they didn't work. (laughs) They didn't work. Somebody in my life still is suffering, or somebody has died, or fill in the blank. Did it work? Lives taken too soon. Senseless wars producing more bodies to mourn every Memorial Day. I mean, if you look around the world, international, the atrocities. I mean, we live in a Western world in a fairly advanced nation, one of the most advanced on Earth, so we don't... We are fairly well shielded from what a lot of the world experiences. Just horrific, horrific. And since it's not nearby, we, it, 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 it's okay. That's you know, just the way it is. See, but I don't think the mismatch has anything to do with whether or not prayer works. Right? At least in the way that God intends it to work. I think our problem is with our expectations of prayer. I love the songs that Dan selects. We, we talk about what, we're, what I'm preaching on, and, and, I mean, every single song. If you later today, later this week, if you didn't get the message, go back and listen to the songs that he selected. They're, they're just perfect. They're just perfect. My question is, do we expect a prayer more than it can deliver? Right? A lot of us look at prayer as basically, and this isn't bad. This is scriptural. But it's a problem when it's the only thing that we pray about—the elimination of bad and the and, and the delivery of good, right? That's that is 99.99% of many of our prayers. Give me the good, eliminate the bad, all my sorrow, get rid of it, and just pour blessings on me. Just that's the ba- that's the relationship that many of us have with God. Make the bad go away, deliver the good. Thank you very much. I can do the rest. I'll live my life. Do we expect a prayer more than God intends, right? Do we, do we treat him like Superman, childhood Santa Claus? We, or do we expect a prayer other than what God intends, right? Um, I know I've heard this prayer. I've, I've almost prayed it. Lord, make me rich so I can tithe a whole bunch. <laughs> God's like, yeah, that's not the way it works there, Pastor. See, so the problem, again, isn't with prayer itself, but maybe with how we view and use prayer in our daily lives. Like much that was given to us by a loving father that was for our good, sometimes there is this possibility that prayer can become a distraction or a substitution for a relationship with God. Like we'll go to prayer and ask for everything we need and go down our list, but we won't simply sit in silence before him because what's the point? I'm not asking for anything. Why am I sitting here with God? Because he loves you. He's done amazing things for you. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be praying for these things. I mean, we have intercessory prayer. We, we just did it a little bit earlier. But what I'm saying, if that is the sum total of our prayer life, we're missing out on a relationship with God, literally. We have, been, we have, we have turned our prayer life, we've turned our scripture, our Bible study into commodities, really. We've commodified these things, and we use them for our benefit, not for what he intended which is a a close and loving relationship with him, we use them like, okay, I'll pray, but only when I need something. And again, he tells us throughout the author, if you need something, bring it to me. But how disappointing if that's the only time you ever come to me, you never come to me and just say, I love you. I just, I think possibly that's a problem with many of our marriages. A lot of people get into marriage and we think, this spouse is going to complete me. They'll do every, and we got that idea, yes. But this spouse will complete me. They'll fill in all the blanks and they'll make me better, make me whole. Yes, yes, that, that's all true. But when that's the sum total of the relationship, that would be very disappointing if Diane only loved me for what I could do for her, right? She's luckily, she's come to the point where I can't do much more for her, but she still loves me. And that's the relationship I think God wants to have with us. Not that, you know, come to me when you need in, the, in Douglas video. That, that's fantastic. That's absolutely accurate, true. But is that the only time we come to the Father? When life seems to turn on you, seems to hate you. And for Christians, that quickly morphs into when God seems to turn on me and seems to hate me, right? We, we quickly make that leap almost unconsciously. Life did something. No, God did something to me. Right? It wasn't life. It wasn't genuine evil. It wasn't just this broken world. God, right? God did, did something, right? So when life, when God turns on you and life or God seems to hate you, no matter what you do or what you don't do, whether you pray or not pray, right? Which verse and which prayers address that kind of situation? Because as believers, again, if you haven't been in that situation, if you haven't been in that dark night, it's coming, Something's going to happen in your life where everything that you learned about God in Sunday school, even adult Sunday school, is just going to fall apart. It's like you're going to be faced with, well, do I hold on to all of these beliefs that aren't making an impact in my life? Or or can I focus just on the source of all those beliefs and just lay them down for a moment and just focus on a Heavenly Father that loves me? Nothing else. No, none of my needs. And again, again, don't, don't, don't go home. Jerry said, don't pray for our need. I didn't go there. I just didn't, so stop it. We're going to look at King Jehoshaphat. He prays the right prayer in a time of darkness. Right? Just horrible. And, and again, I'm, as I read this story, it's going to be easy. For the, the, the truly horrendous events that are about to unfold, it kind of shoots right over our heads because we live in the West and we don't experience this kind of stuff. So I'm going to start off before I get too far ahead of myself. This, I'm going to spend the whole time in Second Chronicles uh, chapters 17 through 20. All right, so if you've got Bibles, I'll, I'll be, everything will be coming up here on the screen um, if you don't flip as fast as I move through these scriptures. I'm going to start in Second Chronicles chapter 19 verses 1 and 2. It says this, When Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, returned safely to his place in Jerusalem, Jehu the seer, the prophet, the son of Hanani, went out to meet him and said to the king... Okay, a little bit of background. Right, background here. Um, this takes place in the golden era of the kingdom of Israel. Or excuse me, after the golden era of the kingdom of Israel. You know, the days of King Saul, King David, and King Solomon. That was the only time that the, the nation was united under single kings. Right? And after, after King Solomon... Uh, things weren 't done right, everything kind of fell apart, and the nation of Israel split into two nations. We have the northern nation of Israel. they kept the name i don 't know if they flipped a the coin or what, but the southern nation took the name of Judah, so we got the northern kingdom of Israel, southern nation of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, there are ten tribes in the northern kingdom i don 't know why they got ten, and the southern nation only got two but that 's just what happened um, and If you read through first and second kings, first and second. Chronicles you find out that ninety nine percent of the kings of the northern, of the northern kingdom of Israel were horrible they were, they were wicked, they were just the worst, right just one after another, and I think one or two might have but, but just just horrible and then you read through the kingdom about the kings of the kingdom of Judah, and they were just sometimes horrible and wicked but and they had a lot of good ones and Jehoshaphat was and his dad was they did mostly good. They weren't perfect, but they did mostly good. I mean, so that's kind of the background. And so Jehoshaphat um, has... Well, I'm going to continue reading. This is going to go to verse 3. Continue with verse 2. The, the, the seer, Jehu, comes out and says to king, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is on you. All right, so what did, what did Jehu, Jehoshaphat do wrong? Right, So, he is a, he's the, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And again, he did, he did a lot of things right, but a couple of things very, very, very wrong. The latest of which, he marries into the family of the king of the northern kingdom who is the wee, wicked and evil King Ahab. And remember his wife Jezebel. Like, like they're the poster child of evil for the Bible in the Old Testament. You, 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 you look in the dictionary, evil, and you're going to see a picture of King Ahab and Jezebel because that, that's like, the, the, they're the worst. They're the worst. And Jehoshaphat, he's like a really good guy. We're going to find out. He does a lot of things right, but he, he goes and marries for political purposes into the family of King Ahab. And then, not only that, he joins his armies with the wicked armies of King Ahab to attack some neighboring kingdom. Now, like I said earlier, he did some dumb things, but he did some really good things too, right? Which seems that God seems to recognize and, and, and show favor to Jehoshaphat. And I don't know, when you, when you see all the crazy, dumb things he did, God just looks at his good stuff. I, I, don't, I can't explain that either. Um, Continuing in verse 3, there is, however, some good in you, right? Because of this, the wrath of God is on you. There is, however, Joel says, there is however some good in you for you have rid the land of the asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking god in fact all of chapter 17 and the rest of this chapter chapter 19 is all about all the good stuff that jehoshaphat did right he, he reestablished the judges he made them be honest right he set up garrisons and and posts to stop marauding neighboring nations from harassing the nation the, the southern kingdom i mean he was just wonderful wonderful things all through these chapters right the people loved king jehoshaphat in fact in a little bit when, when the crisis hits that we're going to study this morning when the christ hits, all the people just rally around him because he just did good things for the people he was a good king he, he really was a really really good king and yet bad stuff happens to good people right god sends the rain and the just and the unjust are both allowed to enjoy its benefits Again, if I were God, I'd put a little thing over the ugly people, the mean people, the the using people, and they don't deserve rain. But God is loving. Thank God for that. So we've got this idea that good Christians never or should, should never experience pain and suffering. So wrong. Let's just dump that right now. Anyway, chapter 20 starts with some truly alarming news. After this the Moabites and the Ammonites with some of the Mennonites uh, came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Continuing in verse 2. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It is already at, at Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. And again it's easy for us to miss the gravity of this situation. We, most of us here in this nation, have never experienced, I kind of wrote this out for myself, an absolute loss of any control over truly horrific impending circumstances. Like we, in this nation, we, that that just, we, we don't deal, now in our personal lives, when you go see a doctor this can become a reality. But for the, the whole nation, for this king who's trying to take care of his people and provide safety and, and do good by their, by them, this is, this is horrifying. This is horrible, horrible, horrible news. And again, it's easy for us to miss the gravity of this kind of a situation until you look at maybe a Rwanda. You know, about 30 years ago, 500,000 people massacred mostly by machetes. Or you look today at the Ukraine. The situation. So, so we, it's very easy to get to a point where you think, oh, this only happened like thousands of years ago. No, this is relevant. This is incredibly relevant, relevant for today. A vast army was a big deal in the ancient Middle East. These were brutal days of conquest and war, and the losers lost everything in brutal fashion. You know, tongues get cut out, eyes get poked out. I mean, it's just, just, just crazy. The whole, it's just horrific. And this is the people. They're hunkered down. I mean, you just got to picture them. They're hunkered down. They're inside the wall. And they're, I, I don't think they're doing anything but praying. They are, they are in a state of absolute terror. They have no control over this vast army. And they know what these armies do. Right? They, they know. And they're looking at their kids. And they're looking at their spouses. God, God, where are you? Right, through scripture, oh, this one will work. Oh, we'll, we'll pray this prayer. Oh, we'll pray this prayer. We'll, we'll go find this prayer. And we're, we're searching and nothing. We don't hear nothing, nothing. They hear nothing from God. The king is so alarmed that not only does he turn to prayer, smart guy, but he proclaims a fast for the whole nation. Verses 3 and 4, Alarm, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, pray, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Right? He he had earned their trust. Right? They knew this man cared for them. Truly. He wasn't going to turn and run. So whatever plan of action this godly man was taking, these people were like, Yep, we're with you. We are with you. 100 You've proven yourself to be a good king. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, gave a speech. And he prayed really the only prayer that could possibly take in the scope and the magnitude of what was surely about to happen to the king's people. And I think it's a prayer that can take in like the scope and the magnitude of whatever it is that you might be at home maybe um, Maybe here in the building, something that you're facing, you might be the only person that knows about it, and it's huge. You have lost all control of the situation and the results in your mind, because you can't think of any other results, because you are a limited person and you are a flawed person, you can't see the things that God sees. You see no options, and therefore that's your reality. There are no options, and I am sunk. It's a horrible place to be just a horrible horrible place that's a place where people lose their faith they just like god no you can't be real if i'm facing this and you're not doing anything something's not matching in my world here starting in verse 6 it says lord the god of our ancestors are you not the god who is in heaven You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. So the first thing that King Jehoshaphat does in this prayer is remind the people of the facts, just the facts. I love one of the songs that you selected, Dan, it had that, just, just the facts. I can't remember what the phrase was, but I didn't have my pen, didn't write it down. Just the facts, no hype, no hot air, just the facts. This is who God is. This is God's character. He is a good, good, faithful father. He just lays out the facts, right? And again, we easily easily miss the connections that Jehoshaphat makes in the minds of the listeners. Because what they heard, they heard this, what I just read to you, but they also heard King Solomon giving a very, very similar speech about 100 years earlier. Very, very grand speech. This is what echoing in their mind. In fact, he quotes King David here. Again, I think this is all on purpose. He's asking the people, remember God. Remember, no. The ethereal, he did this or that. This is real stuff on the ground, real stuff, provable, historical facts. This is what God has done. This is who he is. His prayer continues with more facts, this time about God's track record. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before the people of Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? In that one sentence, King Jehoshaphat brings to mind Moses and Joshua and the taking of the promised land. And even a thousand years back to the promise given to Abraham about that land. Right? So he's, he's bringing up all of the... And he's, he's not only saying the words, but in their, their mind, they're connecting all the stories. They're connecting everything. God is faithful. That's the facts. Right? Let's just deal with facts here, not with what we hope will happen, what we pray will happen. Let's just deal with the facts. This is, this is Jehoshaphat's prayer. And then the king plants his flag with God's flag. If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. That's just the facts. I don't know how you're going to do it. I have no idea how you're going to do it. We're going to come to that in a moment. But I just know you're going to do it because that's what you do. You've been doing it for all this time, and why would you stop now? That wouldn't make any sense whatsoever. And then the praying king puts the facts of the past together with the facts of the present. Just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. But now here are the men from Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they're now repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Oh, God, will you not judge them? And then King Jehoshaphat makes three rather startling admissions, confessions that don't sound much like prayer. But I believe is the basis of all of our prayers, should should be the basis of all of our prayers. Three startling admissions. This is the king. He's supposed to be. I got all the answers, right? Look to me. Here's what he says: For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We are clueless. King telling his people, "Mm -hmm, I have nothing. I got nothing. Any of you got a plan? Because I got nothing. Second thing he says: We don't know what to do. I don't have a clue. I know I'm your king. I know I'm supposed to know what to do. But this vast army is so much bigger than I can handle, that any of us can handle, and I don't know what to do. And then the third thing he says, but our eyes are on you. And again, that can be startling to somebody. No, I need your eyes on the army. I need you to go talk to the general. I mean, now's not the time to prayer. Get off your knees and, and fight, King Jehoshaphat. He's like, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. This is the way we're going to do it. Many of you have been at this place. Maybe you're there right now. Nothing from Sunday school is helping. Even visiting friends are about as helpful as Job's friends. Again, this is the kind of place where one loses their faith. I want to share a book. In the 1500s, a monk by the name of John of the Cross wrote a book called Dark Night of the Soul, describing his experience with this place in his life. He was working with Mother Teresa. Um, the Catholic Church didn't like what he was doing, put him in prison, just, just hor- a whole string of horrible situations. And, and eventually he's left in a prison where he develops these ideas for this dark night of the soul. And again, don't be misled by the title. Um, when we read Dark night, we think sinister automatically. But in this book, He writes that it took a dark night of the soul to rediscover a loving relationship with God built not around what God should be or what God should be doing for me, but around who God is, period. And this dark night of the soul in this book he writes, it's literally this journey of him letting go of everything, all of, well, let me continue here. He writes that for those experiencing the dark night of the soul, the most troubling part is not the situation that brought on the dark night of the soul, the death, the impending decision that has no right decisions, you know, none of that. The most troubling part is the apparent absence of God. The first thing many of us do, he writes, is wonder if it's all a test or a punishment which is just a sly way of staying in control, right? Because if it's a test, maybe I can pass the test. I can handle this. If it's a punishment, maybe I can get out of the punishment or I can withstand the punishment, right? I'm still in control. I'm still in control. And we immediately go there. We want to control everything or use God to help us control the situation. And this is how we use prayer, like, get me out of this. I mean, think about it. I got thinking about this. Why build your entire relationship with God around pain and suffering and requests When the fact of the matter is, the way I read God's Word is that we're going to spend eternity with Him without sorrow and pain and suffering. So here we are busy building a relationship around a topic or something that will not even be in our eternity. Now, I'm not saying again that we can't be praying for all these needs, but I'm saying that we need to expand what we call prayer and begin to include just a loving discussion and relationship with a loving, faithful, heavenly Father. has nothing to do. Don't bring your problems to Him just every once in a while. Right? He knows them. (laughs) He knows them. But occasionally, just come to him and, what do you got for me, God? You know what I got. (laughs) What do you got that I I need that I don't even know that I need? And I'm just going to wait. But in the end, the dark night of the soul is about letting go of preconceived notions of who God is And what he should be about. It's about letting God be who God is, not who or what we want him to be for us, like individually, even. It's really about letting go of childhood beliefs in order to form, to more fully grasp a mature faith in a loving God. It really is a battle between belief and faith and, and and that's a weird kinda of, let me let me flesh this out for you just a little bit John of the cross claims that when we make lists of what God is or what he does what he can do for us heal us save us you know, all these things we tend to create a God that's not really the God of Scripture we assign every capacity and ability imaginable in the highest order to him and then expect him to deliver on all these attributes John of the Cross claims that this serves mainly to fool people into believing that their half baked images of God and their flawed ideas about how God acts are the real thing. And he concludes his book, The Real Thing, is simply being in the presence of God. Not receiving anything that God can give to us, even though our life is literally, he pulls back that hand and we're in a bad way. He writes this about the connection between beliefs and faith. He says, I do not believe I'm describing a loss of faith in God here. Instead, I believe I'm describing a loss of faith in the system that promised to help me grasp God. And he describes this process that John of the Cross went through, and, and this writer writing about John of the Cross also went through. In his dark night, in his horrible situation, he had to let go of everything that he thought God should have done which, which only produced anger on his part. And that took a while to let go of, why didn't you, God? Why did, why, you, you can, I know you can, why didn't you? And so he got rid of all, and of, he kind of became a theologian of the negative, not not like a downer person, but instead of describing God by what he is, he described God by what he's not. He said, so when we describe, when we, when we give all God all these crazy attributes that he doesn't want and he doesn't have, Again, we've created a God in our own image. We've created a tool for our benefit. Is that not who God is? The dark night of the soul is about letting go and waiting on the Lord. And there's tremendous peace in this letting go of control and of expectations. Kind of seems like foreshadowing, right? To another time when God's people were asked to wait before God. Upon His ascension into heaven after His resurrection, He instructed the disciples to not leave Jerusalem. I'm sure they wanted to leave to escape possible crucifixion themselves. I mean, the, the last thing on their mind was to hang out and see what happens. Jesus asked them to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit, and it was given on the day of Pentecost. Second Chronicles, the period of waiting before the Lord is rewarded with the gift of the Spirit. Now, it's not exactly an Old Testament Pentecost, right? But don't miss it. The Spirit of the Lord did show up, and communicate something that Jehoshaphat and all his people, they could not see to conceive of. They just, they couldn't. It was like, we, we don't know. We're, we're at a total loss. We do not know what to do. This, this state of humility, this position of humility, just absolutely crucial. I don't know what to do. But a man named Jehaziel began to prophesy. God had found a way to communicate his message because his people trusted him. Now, again, before we find out how God delivered, the absolute key here is not whether or not God delivers on what we wanted. The key is, does he love us? Does he still hold us in his hand? Has he ever let go of us? because this world will throw horrible stuff at us and we will experience it and we cannot turn to God and demand an explanation as to why this happened. I read my Bible. I appoint judges. I build garrisons. I pray. I do all these things. What's up? Where are you? Here's the message they gave. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be discouraged or afraid because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up by the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And again, this was a long time ago, right? Long, long time ago, 1,850 years ago. Does God still work like that in our modern day? I believe he does. When we acknowledge God in prayer, who he is, when we offer and retell the stories, the amazing accounts of what he's done, we bring God the highest praise possible. In light of who God is and what he's done, we can with unwavering faith offer our requests, always coupled with humility. <laughs> right? This is the part that we tend to forget. That's, that's the, the kicker. We come and demand God do for us what we think should be done. That humility thing, absolutely crucial. When we pray like this, we can depend on God to send his Holy Spirit to help us. He's faithful to hear and answer our prayers and show us a way forward. And again, more than likely, it's not the way forward that we envision. In fact, because we couldn't envision a way forward, we lost hope. See, that's when you lose hope, when you can't envision a way forward. God always gives us the way forward. It always gives us the way forward. And how does Jehoshaphat respond to God's mercy? Verse eighteen: Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. Worship is without a question the appropriate response for the work of the Spirit, all right? Giving God praise for His faithfulness and response right, to our prayers. But His obedience doesn't end in prayer. This is so crucial. It doesn't end with him on his knees. The next morning, Jehoshaphat has a radical strategy for battle. Rather than armor bearers and swordsmen leading the way, he has the choir and the worship team lead the army. Incredibly unconventional idea, to say the least, but the people, right, they love Jehoshaphat. This this is our guy, like, okay, yeah, that sounds like a great idea, King Jehoshaphat. (laughs) And as they begin to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. The Ammonites and the Moabites rose up against the men from Mount Seir. You see what's going on here? Like the three enemies, the three enemy groups are now attacking each other. They're, they're confused. I, I don't know what, what to say. To destroy and annihilate them, after they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. In other words, God caused the armies to fight against each other. All their strategy, nothing. Jehoshaphat only needed to stand firm and see the deliverance of the Lord, just as the Spirit had said. So my, my challenge this morning is we just need to keep praying. We need to keep praying, followed up by action, right? right? We need to celebrate God's goodness. We need to rehearse his faithful track record, and we need to present our requests in full humility, knowing that we don't know what he knows. and We, we don't love like he loves, right? His ways are higher than our ways. You know that passage is taken from a, a pastor that's talking about how could you forgive these people? Well, God does. His ways are higher than our ways. Our forgiveness <laughs> his is up there. I believe God wants us to move today as God moved then. I believe He wants to undercut the forces that divide our nation and our world, forces that divide us and turn us against each other. And as we journey toward the day of Pentecost I just I want to challenge us to pray that God's Spirit would fall on us in a fresh way. Show us the way forward, not just in reaching the lost, but in helping him reconcile a broken and lost world that is just at odds with each other right now. He's asking us to play a part in that redemption. A little P.S., Great little it's kind of aside the point. This valley had a name where all this occurred, where this battle occurred. And after the battle, I don't know what the battle what the name of the valley was before, but Jehoshaphat gives it a new name. Called it the Valley of Praise. See, we got this idea that when we're in the valley of darkness, that, that nothing but horrible, nothing but nothing but bad can happen. Jehoshaphat, I think, has told us that in these valleys of death, that's where God is most likely to meet us because that's where most likely we're most likely to ask him. Right? We're on the mountaintop, we're like, Yeah, I see you, God, in the view great from up here. Yeah, I see you far off. But when we're in the valley, we're like, where are you? I want you in my pocket. And he is, and he does. And that's where we find. That our joy wasn't in the relieving of suffering, but our joy was in the fact that we have a good and loving, faithful father who never leaves or forsakes us. Even when our answers to our prayers go unanswered, even when nothing makes sense, he makes sense, his love.